Good morning. I, uh, I gotta be honest, that song was kind of wrecking me back there. Uh, I, um, what a statement to say, Jesus, you don't owe me anything. <clears throat> because I, I often feel like he does. Uh, I often approach Jesus expecting him to give me what I want. And uh, I have an agenda almost every time I come and pray. <clears throat> Anybody else relate to that? Just me? <laughs> um, one of the hardest things for me to do is sometimes come to Jesus and say, whatever you want, <laughs> as opposed to, hey, I got some things that I want, Jesus. Um, <clears throat> today is a special day in the life of the church. It's called Palm Sunday. Uh, some of you grew up in churches and you're like, where are all the palm trees? Well, they make a mess. I'm in charge of the building, so we're not doing that. Um, my name's Pete, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, I oversee the building. So, uh, <laughs> But it's, it's the first day of Holy Week leading up to Good Friday when Jesus is arrested and executed as a criminal and then resurrected on the third day, Easter Sunday, which we'll be celebrating this weekend. And we call it Palm Sunday. For those just welcome to different places, it's a little background. Palm Sunday, the entire ministry of Jesus happened outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital. It was like Washington, D.C. for their people. And Jesus had spent about three and a half years or so on the outskirts doing ministry. And he had never actually entered the capital. And this is an important thing because they believed he was the Messiah. And the word Messiah meant... Uh, um, one who's been called or anointed to be king or leader. And for a person who was claiming to be or believed to be a Messiah to enter into Jerusalem was a very big deal. That would have been a political thing because that's the capital. Uh, if, you, if you're saying you're the rightly elected president and you enter into Washington, D.C., it's going to cause an uproar. And it did. It caused an uproar. But in many ways, not a bad uproar. This was a good uproar. Large crowds gathered and cheered and celebrated. And it says this in Matthew 21. We see this in verses 8, put up on the screen here. It says, a very large crowd, tons of people, they spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches, palm branches, from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so we call it Palm Sunday because these palm branches that are on the road uh, intense excitement as Jesus enters the city. But what's interesting about this, this whole scene, and we're going to unpack it a bit today, is that if you think about it, isn't it a little bit odd that they're going to these extremes of celebrating this king entering their city, this conquering here, throngs of people shouting and cheering. And then like five days later, these same people are shouting crucify. Um, not least some of his own friends and companions, like completely turning the table. And the truth is, Palm Sunday is not significant just in the fact that it was like a celebration. It's significant in how odd and counter it is that this thing happened. These two events, crucifixion and Palm Sunday, were just days apart. And that the people that were cheering and shouting and saying, yes, he's come, we like this, this is good. A few days later, like, nope. <laughs> and I wonder if part of the reason is because he didn't quite meet their agenda. And because 
in their hearts, it was, no, Jesus, you do owe me something, and I expect you to give it to me. Um, what happened? Why, why this shift? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I actually, I know that sounded like I planned, I didn't even know they were singing that song, but just back there, like, man, this is my own heart, and I, and I think this is something that's true of us today. So I want to invite you just, just to pray with me, and I know this is kind of the thing that we do, like, all right, now we pray, there's any transitions. This is just a moment for us to really turn our hearts to God. And say, Lord, if you have something for us, we're listening. Let's just pray. Just, I don't know, you know, bow your head, close your eyes, whatever it is. But I just want to pray and ask God to really speak to us this morning um, about what this might mean for our lives. Would you pray with me? Um, God, we're, we're coming and first and foremost, just for myself, God, I acknowledge that I always feel like I have an agenda and I have expectations of you. I often have things that I think you owe me. And this morning, God, um, it's good to sing that, just to remind myself. I don't know that it fixes it. But, God, I do want to be the person you've called me to be and, and approach you the way you've called me to approach you, to know you the way that you want to be known. And I pray for all of us as this community of people coming from completely different places and different backgrounds, collectively saying we want to know you the way that you want to be known and approach you the way that you want to be approached and to be the people you've called us to be. So I pray that you'd speak this morning and help us live that out. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I want to tell you a little bit of a story about a young man named Ben. Uh, ben was an American patriot uh, by any sense of the word. He was born into an upscale British family in the American colonies, very successful, politically connected, great social standing. And as a young man, though, Ben actually watched as his father uh, essentially ruined his family through uh, excessive drinking and different things. And then the British government passed some tax laws as a, as a shipping company, Mercantile, it really affected them. So by the time Ben was a young man, uh, his family was in ruins and almost broke. And this made Ben upset, obviously, but also it did two things. One, it made Ben upset because he was angry at the British for what they had done, but Ben also hated the fact that he had now lost his sort of social standing, right? He had lost this, my family's wealthy, we're powerful, and now like people, oh, poor Ben, you know, and he wanted it back. He wanted that prestige and that wealth back. So uh, early on, he found this group of people who were secretly sort of underground figuring out ways to subvert the empire. They were called the Sons of Liberty. So he joined the Sons of Liberty, and pretty soon, all-out war broke out against England, right? And Ben jumped at it, front lines. Uh, he was one of the first people to enlist in the new Continental Army. And, I mean, this was his chance where his ambition and his drive for supporting a new American nation, but also... Here's the thing, Ben knew that, like, you get on the ground floor, there's a new nation coming. He had a chance to rise up and be a part of this, um, you know, build a name for himself, distinguish himself. But he also, he was a true believer. Uh, he really was. There's, like, writings from him, or he was, like, fighting for freedom and all these kinds of stuff. And he fought very bravely, multiple battles, wounded many times in his leg. He had actually had a limp the rest of his life. He, he bled for his country and was one of the first people to take the first oath of allegiance to the new American country. Uh, his bravery and his commitment were so uh, widely known that uh, a General George Washington heard about him and brought him in and actually elevated him to a general himself and gave him uh, a command of one of the most important outposts 
at the time, the, the West Point Fort up in New York. He was a key player in the war, fully, fully committed. And then something interesting happened. In September 1780, there was a British uh, spy, basically, an intelligence officer named John Andre, who was captured, and he was carrying some papers with him. And these papers were a correspondence that he had been sending back and forth. And it basically outlined these plans to hand over the West Point Fort to the British, along with key information on troop movements and other intelligence in exchange for money and a position in the British Army. And these papers were signed by young Ben. Benedict Arnold, Major General, the American Colonial Army. And 250 years later, that name is still synonymous with treason and treachery, like Benedict Arnold, right? You hear it, it's like, but why did he do it? Because he was a believer. Like, he was a believer. Like, you, we have his writings. We have his actions. He took bullets for this, right? It's like his leg was shattered multiple times fighting the British. Why would a staunch patriot who seemed to believe so strongly in the cause who likely cheered with the rest of the crowds when the declaration was signed. He probably heard about some guys in Boston throwing tea over the boat. He's like, yeah, yay. And just a few years later, he's completely sold out his country and turned his back on the entire American dream. Why? Well, he claimed that he had become disenchanted, that he was kind of, he felt like the, the new American leaders weren't too good. And he actually said in like a letter that he wrote that he believed that, uh, he, he kind of came to the conclusion that this actually wasn't better for his people and that British would actually be better at ruling his people. And it was like, okay, right, sure. Most historians, they'll look back on it and paint a different picture. Most historians look at his life and they show a man who was committed. They show a person who actually believed this, who was on board with it, who, who was like, yes, yes, let's fight this cause. But it was a cause that meant a better life for himself. The American Revolution meant here was a guy who could rebuild his family's fortune, who could restore his name, who could get some revenge on the people, the British that had messed up his business. And so there's a chance to restore something, to get something. Revolution created the perfect opportunity for young Ben to rise the ranks um, and establish himself in the nation's new leadership. And so while he fought historically, heroically at first, like he really did, it was like, he was a, man, this, you can read the stories, like this guy was a bulldog. He was a great warrior. His commitment kind of began to fade. It eroded after he was overlooked for promotion a few times and got reprimanded and he started like, well, maybe this isn't gonna work out. He took a few, and now his leg's all broken and he's like, is this actually better for me? Am I actually better off doing all of this? So he turned his back in what was the most notorious act of treason in almost 2,000 years since another famous traitor named Judas Iscariot. We know that guy, don't we? And while these two people are obviously a very different time and place, they're, they're, you know, they're different times, the specifics of their situation are, are oddly similar. And their motives for treason, I think, were kind of the same. Because just like in the American colonies, Benedict Arnold had this chance to, 
to rise up and fight these oppressors. Israel, at the time of Jesus and his followers, it, it was different, but there was a very similar thing happening. Israel was this small little once nation that had been conquered by a foreign oppressor. There was a, a, a king, a Caesar, who lived on the other side of the waters, who was ruling them harshly and not giving them their fair share. They were overtaxed. They were losing their land. The whole nation was a powder keg waiting to explode. There were men who gathered in secret societies and planned how to overthrow this Roman oppression, their own sons of liberty. And after years of brutal leadership, and oppression, insensitivity to their way of life, their religion, stealing their land, the Jewish people were calling for revolution. They really were. They even had a word that was the same word that we use for basically a revolutionary today. It was a word, leistes, that's often translated as bandit or brigand or thief, but it meant someone who's rising up and fighting against the government. And all this is happening, and, and there's this, this seed of unrest, of anger, of a desire for religious freedom, for get their land back, get their stuff back, just like the American colonials. And this is why it's like these people, a rumor or the thought of a Messiah. Guys, like, it's so easy for us looking backwards to be like, oh, well, Jesus came to save my soul. Like, but it's not what that word meant to them. This was like a George Washington who was going to lead them in a battle. A true king who would throw off the foreign king and establish their nation. Who would wage a holy war, a revolution, win back their land, establish their lives as they wanted them. A warrior king. And so they, they, there was prophecies about this is what happened, that God was going to send this Messiah to lead them. And they were waiting and they were anxious and every year at Passover, they would sing this psalm, Psalm 118. It looked forward to what God was going to do while also looking back from the history of slavery. Verse 10 says this, all the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. <laughs> like, right, we're going to fight. They're, they're, we're, we're losing, but man, we're going to win. Verse 13, he says, I pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And that word salvation there uh, is a different sort of uh, form of the word Hosanna. He has become my Hosanna. He is the one who's rescuing me in this moment of my oppression. And you jump down to verse 25, it says this, Lord God, save us. That's literally the word Hosanna. Hosanna is like a cry to be saved. Save us. Grant us success. Success from what? From our enemies. Give us success from the people that are persecuting us, from the people that are stealing from us, the people that are trying to take what's ours. Give us success. Save us from this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when he came in riding into the city, this psalm is what they were shouting at him. And the next verse, I don't have it up there, talks about laying the boughs, the, the branches on the ground as the king enters the city. They believed that Psalm 118 was happening, that God was going to rescue them from their suffering and, their, and their, their, all this stuff. And they had a very specific expectation of what the Messiah would mean for their lives, of what was going to happen when he came. And the shouts of, save us, Hosanna, 
we're not referring to some spiritual rescue to the afterlife. They were a rowdy bunch of colonialists burning an effigy of King George, crying for political, social salvation from their enemies. This is what was happening in the moment. They would have been expecting this person coming into their city. They were laying down stuff on the ground as a sign of honor and like, yay, welcome, great king. You know, a mighty warrior riding on his steed with a big sword. Let's go, kill some people. You know, ride in the middle of town, go straight up to the governor's mansion and kick those Romans, those British out of town. Call all faithful Jews to vengeance. And get this, I think this is so important too. The people who were following the king in that moment, the people who were joining in with this, well, what happens when the king, this new person, this revolutionary, what happens if this person wins and they actually do kick out the foreign oppressors? Well, you establish a, a new government. That person becomes king. And guess what you get to be? Guess what happens to you if you're one of the people that's been following this person for the last three and a half years? If you're one of the people that's like, yeah, I'm with you, man, right? You're, you're, you're on the, the road up. You're on the path to get things a lot better for yourself. And it wasn't just Judas. Look at this verse in Mark chapter 10. It says, James and John, other disciples, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hey, we have a, we have a request for you. What, do you. what do you want me to do, Jesus says. And then he goes on, he says, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And oftentimes we read a sentence like that and it's a little bit like, is he talking about like when they get to heaven? No, they're not, they don't have any concept of dying and going to heaven. The left and the right were these two positions of governmental authority that today might be like vice president and secretary of state. But that's, they weren't a democracy, they were a kingdom. So it was more like second most powerful, third most powerful. When you're king, can we rule with you? Can we, can we be a part of the new government and have positions of honor that when we walk down the street, everyone's like, oh, that's James and John. They're, they're the second, third most powerful people in the world. Greatest respect, social standing. Here's a question I have. Why do James and John get a pass, but we always come on to Judas? James and John wanted the same thing. They asked for it. They actually said, hey, we want power. We want money. We want wealth. Will you give it to us? They were wanting the same thing Benedict Arnold was, hoping what he would get by joining the Continental Army. They were jumping on board with this. Revenge for their enemies. Kill some Romans. Greater social standing. There would be wealth and power when you're on top. It is good to be the king, and especially be one of the king's boys, right? A king like David who, who slew a giant that they could follow straight into the palace, start the revolution, and take over and be on top. So of course they'd follow him. Of course Benedict would be a good, loyal soldier as long as it was gonna be good for him in the end. And it's not just war, guys. It, it, I mean, I'm talking about like violence and all this stuff, but this is, this is just human nature. This is us, this is people. Do you ever notice how whenever you see somebody like famous on TV or something, they're always followed by this long, 
procession of idiots carrying like all of their stuff and brown nosing them and singing their glorious praises in unison. You're like, why do they do that? Why do they have this entourage behind them? What's going through the guy's head who probably has a master's in biochemistry but gave it all up to follow one of the Kardashian sisters with a poodle and pick up its poop? Why are they doing that? What's going through their head? The person who will like take off his clothes and put it on a mud puddle so a rich person doesn't get his alligator shoes dirty. Thank you, Jeeves. Why do you do that? Is it because they just love him so much? No. It's because they want something. It's because they're rich and they're powerful and they have something to give them and make their lives better. If I, if I brown nose this person, I follow them around and I'm with them, when they get more money, they'll take care of me. I'll be in on the ground floor. I'll be part of what I want to be part of. I want to ride his coattails. And I think this is at the heart of the palm branches. That these people, they're convinced that this coming king is coming to give them something that they want, to defeat their enemies, to make their lives better. They had an agenda. This Messiah owes me something. He owes me my freedom. Let's come, come Messiah, come and lead us and kill some Romans together. And so why, you know, just days after this amazing welcome to the city, did all these people, including one of his own, one of the guys that had followed him, just give up, walk away, switch sides? I wonder if the first root of discontent for Judas actually happened earlier, when he was probably there, when James and John just... <laughs> the boldest, most arrogant. Could you imagine being Jewish? Like, did they just ask that? They want to be in positions of power? There's 12 of us guys, you know? And I, I imagine that the other 10, this is in my head, I bet the other 10 are like, well, no, 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 we want, we want that. But the, can we vote on this? Like, can we fight each other over it? Like, how are you going to decide the, the two positions of power, Jesus? And there's Judas probably being like, I want that. That's why I'm, they can't give it to them. And then Jesus, like, just time out, guys. And he turns around and he looks at, James, John, the rest of you, pay attention. Mark 10, 42, he calls them together and he says, listen guys, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, the people that you want me to go kill, they lord it over them. They, they, they rule over it. You know how it is. You know what I'm talking about because you want it. You want that power where you can, oh, look at me, I'm power. Look at my long robe. <laughs> Respect me. They're high officials exercise. I know what you're asking for. You see that and you want it. However, <laughs> verse 43 then changes it. Not so with you. Not so with you guys. You're following me. Whoever wants to become great must become your servant. And whoever must, wants to be first must become a slave. You think in your head that I've come here to make you this powerful world ruler. Actually, that's what I've come to make you. I'll get a little ahead of the story, but I don't think it's a coincidence that when Judas made the decision to betray Jesus, it was for 30 pieces of silver. Because 30 pieces of silver was the average cost of buying a slave in the ancient Roman Empire. Because time and time again, Judas probably had to sit there and watch this would-be Messiah, this supposed hero, savior, who was supposed to restore their nation and raise an army, keep prattling on about serving others and laying your life down, lose your life, lower yourself, love your enemies, 
What? <laughs> Pray for those who turn the other cheek. If they steal your cloak, give them another one. What? Judas didn't join the revolution for this nonsense. This isn't, this isn't, pray for Romans? No, we're not praying for Romans. I'm here to get revenge on Romans for years of oppression. Do you know what they've done to my family? Do you know what they've done to my life? Do you know what they've taken from me? You want me to pray for them and serve and love them? No. This is not what I signed up for. Imagine being Judas and every time he's with Jesus and Jesus actually has an opportunity to do it, to raise the war cry. Whenever the crowds start to grow and people are getting excited and like, let's make him king now. And Judas is like, yeah. And he's like, nope, and walks away. What do you mean no, Jesus? This is our moment. Instead of stockpiling a war chest, to buy weapons, Jesus just keeps giving all the money away. Jesus, we can't start a revolution if you keep giving the money away. How are we going to afford this? And then the people who could actually get on their side and help them raise an army, Jesus just insults them. (laughs) He starts calling them hypocrites and putting them down. The people who could actually make Jesus king the easiest. And instead, he spends all of our time Hanging out with poor, sick nobodies. He's sitting here with women and children. How is that going to make our lives better? Remember that, if some may be familiar with the story of this rich, young ruler, this powerful young man with connections and money, comes to Jesus and says, I want in. I could imagine Jesus would be like, yeah, that's who we need, Jesus. Get this guy on your side. He'll make everything better for us. And Jesus says, oh, take everything you have and go and sell it and give it all to the poor. Then come and follow me. <laughs> what? And then there's Peter who also gets a pass, looks at Jesus and says, whoa, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Like, did you just hear it? It's not like, I'm just following Jesus because I have good intentions. He's like, no, (laughs) you keep giving stuff away. You keep insulting the people that can help us. You keep turning down the offer to be given the kingdom. What, what? What is in this for us? Can you see it start to sink in for these people? Jesus wasn't meeting their expectations. He wasn't meeting their agenda. He wasn't giving them what they thought they were owed. And it wasn't just Judas. It was all of them. They were all confused about where this was going. They were confused about why Jesus was behaving this way and not the way the Messiah was supposed to. It wasn't what they were wanting. It wasn't what they were hoping for. A different agenda. It didn't involve the kind of greatness that they were after. Give, love, forgive, be a servant. What are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I thought you were going to be a king and we were going to punish our enemies and live it up with you. I didn't join you so I could become a dead slave. My life is worth more than that, even if you don't think yours is. And so we read in John 6 that this time, many of the disciples turned their backs and no longer followed him. It wasn't just Judas, guys. 
there were a lot of people who said, you know what, no, I'm done with this. That week in Jerusalem was not the first time nor the last time that people like Judas would hail Jesus as a king and then turn and walk away the next minute because he wasn't the kind of savior they wanted. He wasn't saving them from the things that they wanted to be saved from. Instead of bringing power and glory, he was calling them to love and sacrifice. Instead of overthrowing Rome and mounting their heads on the city walls and punishment for all the wrongs they've done to them, he said, I actually, I want you to forgive them and lay your life down for each other. Well, who wants to do that? <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, unless Brandon gives this great message about our last week in Fully Human. He talked about this picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, this gross, horrible thing that only lowly servants did, getting down on his knees and demeaning himself. And I have to wonder, if Judas was in that room, he had already made the decision the day before. Was he just sitting there looking at Jesus fully and completely sure he had made the right decision. Like, could you just imagine the, the confidence that was growing in his heart? Could he be like, oh, should I have done that, man? I feel bad. Maybe I shouldn't have. Is he getting on his knees washing people's feet? No, I did the right thing. I definitely did the right thing. This king is nothing for me. It's so easy to come and, and, and sing songs about it, right? And like, wave the branches and Shout, oh, save us. <laughs> but what expectations do we actually have of Jesus? What do we think he owes us? What kind of life are we hoping that he brings us when we say yes to him? Kind of a, a side note, a, a confession moment for you guys. Uh, I love movies that things blow up. Um, and uh, one thing I've noticed, and Robert and I went to a movie a few weeks ago, and uh, as, a, as a, uh, a good Christian pastor, I'll confess to you, I only went to the movie as research, not to actually enjoy it. Um, but uh, there's this series of movies called John Wick. <laughs> Any John Wick fans? Don't admit it. Don't say it out loud. Uh, John Wick is, the, it was the fourth movie. It was John Wick 4. And I'll just give you a good, uh, it was the fourth movie where John Wick just continues to get revenge and, and kill bad guys and like hundreds and hundreds of bad guys. And you might say, wow, four movies of him getting revenge, killing bad guys. What did they do to him? They killed his dog. Uh, uh, holy Moses. <laughs> that's, that's the plot. <laughs> There's so like, have you ever noticed that almost all action movies really come down to that? Oh, they, they killed his dog and now he's out for revenge. Come on. You know. And we just love it. We just, you know, yes, get him, get him. So last night, my wife and I are laying in bed, and we decided to watch something. And I'm like, what's a good blow him up movie? She's like, I don't want to watch a blow it up movie. That's how she talks. And uh, anyway, we, <laughs> we, decided, we decided to watch a good Christian movie. <laughs> Great, because Christian movies are awesome. Um, and uh, we, we found, <laughs> there's this uh, documentary on Amazon about this woman named Corrie ten Boom, who is uh, a Dutch... Uh, a woman that lived during World War II. And her and her sister and her father used their house to um, be a safe space for Jews running away from the Nazis. And the story is very tragic. Basically, uh, a person in the community sells them out and tells the, the Nazis that they're doing this. Um, they show up, raid the house, take her and her family uh, into a POW prison camp. And over the next year, 
uh, her father, her brother, her nephew all die. And she watches as her sister is eventually beaten and starved to death. And what was crazy about watching this was there's this scene where uh, after she gets out, you know, she's dealt with all of this pain, all this suffering. And the guard, the Nazi guard who beat her sister, showed up at a church that she was speaking at and was sat in the back row and wouldn't make eye contact with her. And uh, she, she, like, you heard her voice. They recorded her in the 70s telling the story. Afterwards, he came up to her and he said, I, I became a Christian and uh, I, I feel like I need to come and offer, ask you to forgive me. And he held out his hand. And I'm watching this on my TV. And I kid you not, the first thing that popped into my head was, she's just roundhouse right in the face, you know? <laughs> come on, kill some Nazis. I was like, get this guy, get him, get him, come on, get him. And because uh, I'm a holy person. And uh, <laughs> um, I can't roundhouse either. Uh, and she said, I, and she tells the story, and she's like, I just hated him so much. I was so angry. I could not even reach out my hand and touch his hand. I'm like, that's, that's right. And you reach out your hand and punch him in the face. And she said, so I just prayed and said, God, give me the strength to forgive him like you would. And she said, and he did. So I grabbed his hand, and I said, I love you, and I forgive you. And I was like, that's not how the movie goes. And then she found out that the man from her town that betrayed her and her entire family was captured after the war and was being sentenced to death. And she said, I had to write him a letter. She wrote him a letter and she said, you did something that led to the death of my father, my brother, my sister, my nephew, and countless other people. But I want you to know that Jesus loves you and I do too and I forgive you. And I was just like, what in the world? No, that's not... That's not, no, we need to kill these people. And I was watching it last night and I was just thinking how everything inside of us loves John Wick. Now some of you are like, I don't want, I mean, but you know what I mean? We love the guy that gets revenge, gets mine, right? Like leads us into battle. And then here's this frail old woman saying, actually, this is, this is what Jesus looks like. No, Jesus was manly. He had a sword and a horse. Did he? Did he? <clears throat> what are your expectations? Jesus was not the kind of king who made everyone bow and scrape before him. He wasn't the kind of king who said, I've come to punish all of my enemies and give you revenge on all the people who've wronged you. He came to call people to, to love one another. And offer forgiveness to those who most deserve punishment. And amidst the discord and the anger and the disagreement and the people thinking, here's our chance to get a better life, he said, I have come to give you a better life, but it is not the way that you think it should be. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what happens when Jesus starts calling us and we say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, but then he starts leading us to places that we're like, I don't know if that's where I want to go. It doesn't quite fit the agenda that I have in my mind. Yeah, he's going to make my life better. He's going to do this for me and give me this and give me that, and I'm going to get back at this person, all these kind of things. And it starts to not turn out the way that I want it to. It wasn't just Judas. Man, it's so many of us. He's an easy mark. Everybody felt this tension, and I think we still feel this tension today, this struggle to actually follow him for who he truly is. 
And we have this long history, especially in America, of turning Jesus into this thing that we want him to be. We want him to be like William Wallace of Braveheart. Fight our enemies for us. Because we want that, we desire it. And then we actually look at the scriptures and we see Corey Ten Boom reaching out her hand and saying, I forgive you to the man who cost her everything. And here's the great irony of the entire situation, both for them and for the, us today. On the one hand, yes, most of these people held wrong expectations. When they shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday, their reason for cheering their Savior was off base because their need for a Savior was much more than they had any understanding of. They were wrong in their reason for shouting Hosanna, but they were right in their need to shout Hosanna because they did need to be saved, and we do need to be saved. There is something wrong. There is something broken in us. There is something we need to be rescued from. And so when we shout Hosanna and say, Jesus, save us, it's real. It's there. The problem is oftentimes our brain is looking at the wrong enemy. Our brain says, that's my enemy. This thing over here, save me from this Jesus. What? No, no, I, no, no, I, not this Jesus. I need you to save me from this. No, stop talking about my attitude and my anger. No, no, save me from this Jesus. My boss is horrible. Save me from my boss. And we think he's come to save us from a particular political situation or whatever, killing another dictator will somehow make our lives better. It never does. Never does. Blood for blood has done nothing to fix our problems. And so they expected him to be blood for blood. They expected a Messiah to come and say, let's fight a war. And he could have done that. He could have temporarily made their lives better. Jesus could have come and raised an army and fought off the Romans and established a little kingdom in the middle of wherever 2,000 years ago. And what would that mean for any of us? But he had a different agenda. He had something different he wanted done. He wanted to change the world forever by changing us. He wants to bring about change in your life by changing you. He didn't come just to fix all your circumstances. He came to fix something broken inside of me and inside of you. And instead of calling for vengeance and blood, he says, let me fix that part of you. Because the part of you that just loves John Wick killing people is the part of you that's broken. And it's the part of you that keeps bringing ruin to this world in your own life. Let's deal with that. Let's deal with the brokenness. Let's deal with the power of sin that keeps leading you into all these broken places. The salvation that he offers just oftentimes doesn't look like the salvation that we want. We want him to raise an army. And the only thing that gets raised is a cross. Oh, I don't, uh, <laughs> it's so hard, it's so heavy, I don't think, I, right? Cross. And we can get so excited about approaching Jesus and everything, and then he lays out what it looks like, and it's not unusual for people to be like, yeah, no. And to do one of two things, either we just completely walk away from it, which sucks, but sometimes there's something else we do which is almost worse. We don't completely walk away from Jesus. We just change his message to fit our agenda. Oh, Jesus didn't really say that. Oh, yeah. Jesus wants me to happen. 
We, we just ignore those parts. And we say, no, Jesus, you, I want you to take care of the things I want you to take care of. And the truth is, we use the name Benedict Arnold, and we say, traitor, and Judas, traitor. Should the name Pete Goodman be traitor? Because I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I, I just, making Jesus what I want him to be, coming to him and saying, hey, I got things I want you to do, God. Take care of these for me. Here's my agenda. I've been following you. I'm a pastor, Jesus. Yeah, you knew that, right? So please do this for me. Um, you, you owe me. You owe me, Jesus. And then he says, Let's, you, you want the life I'm calling you to, Pete? Yeah, yeah, I do. You, you want the things I'm offering? I do. They're right there. Oh, uh, no, I don't, I don't want to suffer, Jesus. I don't, want, I don't want hardship. I No, no, I want to skip all that and just do it my way, Jesus. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I, I asked the band just to come and um, lead us in another song. And, and I know we always do this. It's like, all right, closing song, go get the kids. I just wonder if maybe for a few minutes you could use this time to ask him, what is your agenda? What, what have you been expecting him to do for you? What have you been coming to Jesus saying, this is why I'm following you, I want this. And just maybe in a moment of honesty with yourself and him, do those things align? Is your agenda for Jesus his agenda for your life? Are you following him because you're really willing to go wherever he's going to take you, even to a cross? Or are you following because, no, I, he's got, yeah. because I do believe that Jesus has good things for you. I'm convinced Jesus has greatness to offer us. But it comes on his terms. Hope and healing and salvation come on his terms. And his terms are lay down your life, love each other, serve each other. Give up the desire for power and vengeance and greed. Lay it down and follow me, he says. And I think we have to just remind ourselves. I think this morning is an opportunity just to remind yourself. Do a little inventory. Am I following him for the right reasons? And if the answer is no, you're, it's okay, because I'm on stage admitting that it's not myself. But it's a good moment to say, God, just correct my course a little bit. I, I choose today to follow you for who you are. Would you just stand with me? I just want to pray for us as we sing this. God, this morning we come and we're, I don't know, I I'm just can speak for myself. I'm preaching to myself. I'm, I know that you're preaching to me. I'm sorry that I've come with my agenda again and again and again, thinking that I owe you something, that you owe me something. You don't owe me anything. I, and today I choose to follow you. Today, once again, I reconfirm my commitment to follow you, not because you're going to give me what I want, but because you give me what I need because you love me and you love this world and you have what's best for me in mind. And so we choose today to follow you through the good and the bad. We choose to follow you through the, good, the expectations being met and the expectations being blown up. And we just say, wherever you lead, we'll follow you. Wherever you're taking us, whatever you call us to, 
We trust that it's in our best interest. We trust that it's better for our world and our lives, even if it's not what we think we want. So speak to us this morning. Correct our course a little bit. Get us back on path if we need to be, to be true followers of you and who you are. We pray this in your name, Jesus.